this year. And there are a number of folks from all parts. It's great to have you with us. Uh, it is a privilege for us to have people from the northern of the city travel down to the south. You're more than welcome. Okay, the green, green stripe will be shut at 12, but unfortunately I won't be finished by then. So, so you won't be able to get back. No, it's crazy. I also want to mention this before we open up God's Word. Joe and Dave, we love you. We appreciate you. And we know that the last 24 hours have been very difficult for you guys. So we're praying, and we're praying that the Holy Spirit would be with you and comfort you. Dave is the pastor of Royal Park and Carl's going to be working with him. Last night, you know, his wife um, lost her dad. In the midst of stepping forward in faith and confidence, he had also experienced the brokenness of the world, right? And so many different things. So it's right for us, the brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us when they weep, we are to weep also. Today is a joyous occasion, but it's also a sad occasion for our reason. So before we do anything, let's pray. Let's pray for our brother and sister. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God who comforts the brokenhearted. And that we are a people who are called to weep with those who weep. We ask the Lord this morning that you would comfort Joe and Dave and the rest of the family. We pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on their dad. We pray, Lord, that through this, confidence in the gospel will be shared and lived out. That they, as a family, will also, as a church family, as well as a park, and as an extended family within to the Cornerstone Collective, we ask, Lord, that in the moments of grief, in the moments of feeling the acuteness of the brokenness of the world, that we would hold fast to the hope of the joy that we have in Christ. And we pray that in this room, in this, this pain, for joy and for David, for Father. Bless them, we pray. Lord, we open your word and pray that the meditation of all our hearts and the words of my mouth will be acceptable to you for your glory's sake. Amen. Amen. If you're a Bible turn to Acts chapter 2. This is 42 to 47, but then also, can you put a finger in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Over the past three weeks, we've been spending some time, as we do every year, looking at the values of Cornerstone Church. These are things that we visit every September because we are a forgetful people. We forget, we're so quick to forget who we are and what God has done for us. We also do this because we have a transient congregation. We have people who arrive, we have people who... Who, who go. September seems to be a time when that tends to happen. And more importantly, we live in a culture and we live in a time, folks, where we need to be clear regarding what we believe. We are living in a world where flowery faith, flowery understanding of what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be a church in this culture, just does not cut it. We have to be clear. And we have to be bold for the glory of God. We've been looking over the last two weeks at Acts 2. I'll look a little bit there, but I also want to spend a bit of time in 2 Corinthians to help us understand that. So let's read this together. Acts 2, verses 42. And they devoted themselves, that's the church. 3,000 people became Christians after one sermon. I'm writing about that today. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and 
coming out of you. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. I'll flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Corinth. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him as no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, but the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, our three values, we are gospel-centered. All that we are, all that we do is based on Jesus Christ and the good news of what he has done. We are marked by that grace, that transforming presence of God as he explodes and as he invades the heart of a broken person and gives them life. And the grace is marked all of them. That is also seen, not only in individuals, but seen in how people respond and engage with each other. And if we are a people that is gospel-centered, and we are a people that are marked by God's grace, people look in and say there's something different about them. We are therefore people who are on mission. We're on mission. By the very definition that we are different and distinct in this world. And then this little story in Acts 2, which is a story that Luke does after Peter preaches, many people come to Jesus, and it's a story of how the church lived, how the church functioned. And this little story, right at the end, what it says is that the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, as you read through the book of Acts, you see that. Time and time again, you read in Acts 5, you see again many of the signs and wonders of resident grown among the people by the hands of the apostles, and more than ever believers were added to the world, multitudes of men and women. Acts 11. There was a man full of the Holy Spirit of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Acts 16. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for their observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, so the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in number daily. As you read right through the book of Acts, what you see is an increasing number of people coming to faith as they see God's people living as God's people, as God's people, and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. That's what you see. See, it's interesting, in verse 47 of Acts 22, what we see Paul touched on this last week, they found favor with all people. They found favor. 
And therefore, one plus one equals two. I love Jesus. I live for Jesus. Therefore, my family and my friends who don't know Jesus should become a Christian. It doesn't work like that. And you can be discouraged when you hear that it's all of God. However, the other side of the same coin is this, that you could be greatly encouraged. Greatly encouraged. Because there are moments where I struggle to believe the gospel, and there are often moments where I don't live distinctively, and somehow God opens up the eyes of people that I've been praying for. Amen? That's liberating. It's liberating as you read through the book of Acts that even all the wonderful things that the apostles did and God's people did, that it was rooted in God and what God has done and what God was doing. So to understand this a little bit more, I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians. So flip your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians. And I want us to see two things in these verses that we've read to think through the values of what it means for us to be a church that is on mission. There are two things I want to see. The first is this, the mission is God's mission. It's God's mission. And the second thing is that even though it's God's mission, God makes his appeal through people like you and people like me. So number one, the mission is God's mission. Now this letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to this church that he planted, and you can read about that in Acts 18. Now there were opponents of Paul who were trying to undermine his work, claiming that the sufferings that he was experiencing because of his work for Christ meant that he was not a true apostle of Jesus. It meant that his, that his ministry wasn't kosher. His ministry wasn't right. But Paul in this letter responds that actually in his sufferings, in the reality of these sufferings actually highlights his dependence on Christ and in fact points that the strength does not come from him, but the strength comes from Christ who has sent him. Actually, when I suffer for Christ, it is evident, evidence that I am an apostle, I am a teacher, I am a worker of his. Now in these verses that we've had read out, Verse 20, it says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Folks, an ambassador, for those that know, ambassador is somebody who is like a, of, of a ranking um, 
position within the government who is sent by his government or his kingdom or her kingdom to a different kingdom, and they represent that kingdom in a foreign land. And often that person is sent on a temporary mission. They're not there for their life. They're there for a period of time. And they are to live as, say, an English person living in France. They are to function. They are to represent. They are to live out the values of what it is to be somebody who's from the United Kingdom living in France. I was in Paris last week. I tried my best. I tried to represent Liverpool. I wore a trackie in the middle of France. It didn't go down well. What I noticed about Paris, everybody is attractive. And I tried my best to be distinctive, but I just seemed to fit in wherever I went. No. <laughs> but we know that an ambassador will represent his kingdom, her kingdom, his sovereign, her sovereign in a different kingdom that is controlled by a different country. And the way that they function and the way that they live is distinctive. And Paul says that as Christians, we are ambassadors of Christ, that we represent him, that our allegiance is to him, that we are residents, residents, citizens of his kingdom, living in a kingdom and a culture and a world that is not our own, representing him and representing his kingdom and his culture. We are ambassadors for Christ. But the question is how, and the question is why. Now it's interesting, that verse 28 says, therefore, therefore we are ambassadors. So that means that something has been said before that helps us understand what, it is, what Paul means when he says that we are ambassadors. There's something that's gone before that that helps us understand that. Now if you look at verse 18, what does it say there? And it's like a pivotal little comment, a pivotal little verse, things that have gone before, things that are coming after it. Verse 18, all of this that you're reading is from God. All of this is from God. The appointment of being ambassador, the mission that he has given us, all come from him. So the question is, what is the basis? What are the things that come from him? What are the things that he has done in order to declare us his ambassadors? Verse 18, what does it say? All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled to himself, us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Christ has reconciled us, broken, busted up people who were enemies of God because of sin. He has come in, redeemed, and reconciled us. We are now, because of Christ, friends of God. Amen? It's all from God. See, it's God who has reconciled us. It is God who has restored the relationship between himself and humanity in and through Christ. And it is God who makes peace. He makes peace between himself and us and also between each other. Do you remember in the garden when the devil came in and sowed the lie and Eve believed and Adam believed? And as a result of sin coming into the world, what did they do? They hid themselves from God and they hid themselves from each other. That's why the world is broken. That's why the world is busted up. Because we're not in relationship with him and we're not in relationship with one another. Whereas what God does, he reconciles us to himself in and through Jesus Christ. He has made peace. It's not a peace that we make. 
It's a peace that he has made and reconciled us to himself. See, that is the basis of what God is. But what is, what, what is the content? What has happened? What does that mean? What does that look like for us? What it means is that because God has, verse 18, reconciled to us to himself, and that, verse 19, that is, in Christ God was reconciled the world to himself, this means that he no longer counts our theirs and our trespasses against us. Against us. What it means is even though we were enemies of God because of our brokenness and our sin, what it means that even though we've lived a life that is far from him, miles away from him, a life that would say, I don't care anything about him, God has made peace in reconciling himself to us in and through Christ, which means that all the sin that we have committed, he chooses not to remember anymore. Amen? Amen? Our conversations with people only this week, that even though they are walking with Christ and loving Christ, they are rooted with guilt regarding sins that they did before they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's wonderful? Our sin has been removed as far as east is from the west, and he chooses to remember no more. He does not count those trespasses against us. Amen? Because he has made peace. See, Paul concluded, also concluded in verses 14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, Paul concludes that by Christ's death, the penalty of sin has been paid for all those who trust in him, and God therefore counts their old life as ended. Amen? Amen? Dear friend of ours who's part of the life of our church, when he became, he became a Christian, then he showed me a picture of himself a number of years before. And the life that this guy was living was a particular life of sin and brokenness. And when you looked at the picture of what he looked like before he looked now, it was unrecognizable. Unrecognizable. And this is what he said to me, that guy is dead. The old life is gone. I'm a new man in Christ Jesus. See, folks, this all happens because God in his kindness sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take that old life in order to give us a new one. See, verse 21, it says this, that he made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. Our old selves were put on Christ. It actually tells us that Jesus became the sin that we committed. Can you believe that? The most grotesque of sins, Jesus became, and God dealt with him. And in exchange, we're not only forgiven, we not only have our trespasses forgotten by him, we are made righteous before him. Totally right before him. And when he declares about his son of baptism, in him I am well pleased. That's what he declares over you and me. Amen? I don't know what you've come with this morning. I don't know what's rattling around your brain now. I don't know what sin you committed in the car on the way here. If you're a mum or a dad, you probably did. In the eyes of God the Father, because of Jesus Christ, he looks at you 
and he's well pleased. Amen? Because of the righteousness of Christ. So Christ's cross, therefore, frees the believer for a new way of life. They no longer live for themselves, but for him, for Jesus, who for our sake died and was raised. And Paul, verse 14, says this, I am convinced, I, it has changed me, it has forgiven me. And verse 14, it is that that controls me. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of what God has done for me that controls how I live and who I am. So then in verse 17, Paul says, those who are in Christ are what? New creations. New creations. The old is gone and the new has come. My dear friend who became a Christian, Freddie, I don't know if he's here, Freddie, when he became a Christian, Charlotte, his partner, said to me probably about six months, I can't recognize Fred. I don't recognize him. His desires, the things that he says, the things that he lived for. Freddie said to me, I don't even recognize myself. Why? Because the old is gone and the new has come. In Christ, he is a new creation. Amen? We're new creations. So therefore, in, in having, being new creations, what that means is, is that the new creation that is promised when Jesus returned breaks into the moment. It breaks in. We get a picture of it, not fully, but, but dimly. We, we get it. We get the joy. We get the hope. We get security. We get acceptance. We get assurance of what is to come. There is something of the new creation where there is no pain. There is no sorrow. There is no broken. There's broken into the darkness, and we experience it in a way where people look in and say, there's something about those people. See, folks, this new creation element is just not me individually. Steve Robbo is a new creation, or, you know, Freddie's a new creation, or Paul's a new creation, or Marion's a new creation. No, we are saved to be part of a people who are part of a new creation. Amen. Living with new values, new kingdoms. Living with an understanding of what it truly is to be human. Finding our rest in God. Actually not being in enmity with one another. That actually looking and even though we are totally different, there is something that is beautiful and something that unites us, which is what Jesus has done for us. Folks, the mission of God is all about God. It is God's mission. The passing of the old and the coming of the new means that we as God's people, as the church, live out a taster now of what that new kingdom will be in the midst of brokenness. And what does Jesus say? That you are a light. You're a city on a hill. And nobody who lights a lamp puts a basket over it. No. They shine. And they shine. And they shine because of what Christ has done. Folks, this is the mission of God. We are who we are all because of him, because of what he has done for us. We are therefore because of that and what he declares about us, his ambassadors. Amen? I can't just decide to be an ambassador to Baku in Azerbaijan. I can't, can I? I can get on a plane, I can wear a suit, I could have a briefcase. I could wander around looking at my phone, looking at importance. I can even go in and I've sit at coffee shops and pretend to have meetings, but I can't be an ambassador on my own steam. No, the government, the kingdom, the one who has the authority has to declare me that. And that's what God in Christ declares over us. We're ambassadors. We represent him and his kingdom 
in our homes, in our workplaces, in our streets, in our community, in our schools, in our universities. We are ambassadors because the mission is not ours. The mission is his. Amen? Amen. And number two, the reason why we're ambassadors individually and more importantly as God's people is because God makes his appeal through us. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? He makes his appeal through us. We are not an impressive bunch of people, are we? But don't worry. Uh, please don't be offended by that. You're in good company because as you read right through the Bible, God's people, Israel, were not an impressive bunch of people. In fact, the Lord Jesus wasn't an impressive person. Isaiah tells us that he had, he had the form of one that people didn't look at. People didn't notice. Paul wasn't impressive. But God somehow and in some way makes his appeal through people like you and people like me. Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary to India, he came back after a number of years. And actually, he was, he was brokenhearted regarding the way the church in the West had become. The, the, the church, had, he looked around and saw that the, the influence and the distinctiveness of the church was, was such that it, it felt like it was not penetrating in any way. And the church had got caught up in event-led stuff. And we, this is how we reach people. This is how we reach people. And missed the point of actually what it meant to live as God's people. And actually to see that within God's will, it was how we lived as God's people that drew people to God. And he said this in one of his books, I've come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian church. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting, Leslie Newbigin said, that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a church of men and women who believe it and live by it. I am, of course, not denying the importance of the many activities which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel, evangelistic campaigns, distribution of Bibles, Christian literature, conferences, and even books as this one, like I am writing. But I am saying that these are all secondary and that they have power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted in and led back to a believing community. Put on all the courses you want. Write all the books that you want. But if the life of the church and of the people who are giving those things or putting on those things does not reflect the gospel, there is no power in those things. Folks, we are ambassadors of Christ, and God makes his appeal to the world through his people, the church. And how does he do this? Firstly, number one, he does this, verse 18, by giving us a ministry of reconciliation. This is our job. A ministry of reconciliation. That we are to live in such a way that displays what God has done for us in reconciling us to him in and through Christ. That's how we are to live. You want to know how to live as a Christian? Seek to understand what it means that you've been made right with God by God. 
And in chapter 6 of, uh, of 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, that he does that, and we ought to do this in a way that puts no obstacles in anyone's way. So there is no fault can be found with our ministry. No fault can be found with the way that we live. Folks, the bottom line in Scouts, we need to be what we are talking about. That's what we need to be. If we're going to be an ambassador, like imagine if I, you know, imagine if, imagine, imagine if I became the ambassador of like, I don't know, Prague in Czech Republic. But I couldn't speak English. And the English representative in the Czech Republic trying my best to represent, but I couldn't speak English. It'd be bonkers, wouldn't it? It'd be bonkers. What happens if I'm trying to represent in some way, but actually, I don't care much for the policies that I'm representing. In fact, I don't even know them. I don't even know what they mean for me in England, never mind what they mean for people in the Czech Republic. See, my credibility as an ambassador just goes right down the toilet because of that. Folks, the bottom line is this, we need to, we need to live out, we need to be what we are talking about. Because if our lives contradict our message, our evangelism will lack integrity. And it's interesting, what does Paul say? He says, he says since, since we've been saved, since we are Christians, we no longer, we no longer um, view each other, we no longer regard each other according to the flesh. So what he's saying is the way that we respond and the way that we live with each other is different now that we are Christians than when we were before we became Christians. So one way of living distinctive, one way of living out the integrity of what we were proclaiming, that Christ has reconciled us back to God in what he's done for us, is how we respond one with another. See, Paul says we don't regard each other as according to the flesh. What that means as enemies. We don't disregard each other as... And he gives the example that he, he even regarded Christ as his enemy according to the flesh. See, folks, if there is not unity in the life of the church, our evangelism lacks integrity because at the root of reconciliation is that we've been united back to God and united with each other. So we can't skip over when we talk about our values, we're gospel-centered, and not consider what it means to be marked by grace. To then think gospel-centered on mission and forget what it truly means to live as God's people. See, that's one of the most important sermons that we'll ever hear. Help us figure out what it means to live in light of the gospel so that when our neighbors look in, they see something different, and then we can proclaim the good news of the gospel. Jesus, as, as his ambassadors, has given us a ministry of reconciliation. See, look at the church in Acts. What happens? They have all things in common. They gave and received with generous hearts. They found favor with all the people, and people looked in and saw a better story. People looked in and saw people suffer in a different way. People looked in and saw people in grief in a different way. People looked in and saw them experiencing the blessings of God's abundance in a different way. People saw them uniting in a different way. See, folks, the biggest growth of the Christian church happened in the first 300 years when the church was being persecuted by the Roman Empire. How? How? Because the church patiently fermented. What does that mean? The church patiently allowed the reality of the gospel to 
penetrate how they live, and as a result, people came to life. Why? Because they made sense of the world differently. They did business differently. They engaged in sexual um, morals differently. They grieved differently. The early Christians embraced a communal model of love, of mercy and peace and humility amongst each other in the everyday, nine to five, wasn't nine to five, every day, all of the hours of the day, in the midst of Rome's swaggering, ruthless domination in this, in this culture that they found themselves, but they patiently lived and trusted the gospel and loved each other with a ministry of reconciliation and Christianity offered a new way of living under a suffering Lord. We need that in our culture more than ever before, folks. Being on mission is living a real world reality that is shaped and cultivated by the Christian way of life in light of the fact that we have been reconciled to God through Christ and reconciled to each other through Christ. He has given us a ministry that displays to the world that we are right with him and right with each other. And the world looks in and says, I want a piece of that. People will turn, into, turn up into people's houses after church on a Sunday and we'll eat dinner and there'll be other people in there who don't even know the hosts and non-Christians are like, this is mad. This is mad. See, as Christian people, many of us who've grown up in the Christian world, eating in each, each other's homes, spending life in each other's homes is the norm for us. But I, let me tell you this, for everybody else, it is not. My home is my island. My home is my castle. My table is just for me and my family or for dinner parties. But when you open up your life as Christ has opened up himself and God to make peace and people see that as Christian people live one with another, folks, that's what it means to live out this ministry of reconciliation. That's how God makes his appeal through us. These people, these people are living out what I have done for them. See it and number two, Listen to what they say. Because the second thing that he gives us, verse 19, is that he entrusts us with the message of reconciliation. Folks, to be on mission is to be people who recognize that it's God's mission and we live out what it means to be reconciled one with another in how we live. But we also proclaim the message that we have been entrusted with. Francis Assisi said, if necessary, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. No, no, no. That is a load of rubbish. The gospel is only preached when the message is proclaimed. We can gospel community people all the way to the gates of hell. We can love on people all the way to the gates of hell. We can open our homes to people all the way to the gates of hell. But Peter says this, doesn't he? Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Are we ready? We've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. And what is the message? Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. That you are an enemy of God, but God has made peace. And it's not telling them that they have to make peace, but that God has made peace with the world. And folks, we've not been entrusted with good advice. We've been entrusted with good news. Amen? No, just me? Amen? Of course we have. This is good news. See, people look in and see something that is beautiful and wonderful and they can't get their heads around and actually sometimes they're offended by it. 
But what is this? It's not advice on how to live. It is the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. We've been entrusted with that message. When I was in Paris, uh, I walked past all the patisseries, you know, all the, the cakes and everything. And I'm looking in. And the guy in the door was speaking to me in French. He was standing there at the, at the door in French. I didn't have a clue what he was saying. Didn't have a clue. But my friend who speaks French turned around and he said, he's beckoning you in, Steve. He's trying to beckon you in. He's seen that you're looking in, and what's in here is something that you're drawn to. He's beckoning you in. He's declaring the good news of the quality of his cakes in the patisserie, and I was at the window going, there's something in that. Why would we leave people outside the window and not beckon them in with the message that we've been entrusted? It's not good advice, it's good news. If you come in here, my friend, you may taste what might happen to be maybe a nice cake. Now, you want to come in here, my friend, because these are the best cakes that you'll have in Paris. That's good news. Amen? You want to know why these people live like this? You want to know why I have hope in the midst of my suffering? You want to know why? Because God has made me his friend and forgiven me and is pleased with me because of his son Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross for me. Amen? And you can know that too. We've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. And folks, as I close, we as God's people who are his ambassadors, who are on mission as he makes his appeal through the church, need to figure out what it looks like for us. We need to figure out what it means for us. And we as a church uh, have done that. And we want to, there are three commitments that, that, that I think that we live out as people who are on mission. We want to be those who in every area of life are proclaiming the gospel. But just as a church, and these three as I close, number one is this, that we want to be a cornerstone church, a church that is committed to gospel community. You might think that's strange. What I mean by that is we're a church that is committed to living ordinary life with gospel intentionality. Ordinary life as a family with the rough and the ready and the difficulties. For those that don't know, I've got four kids. I'm married to Sean, I've got four kids. Imagine if my relationship with my children, imagine if the relationship with each other was that we met once a week and I stood at the front and all the kids faced me and I just talked at them and I said, see you on Wednesday. And we opened up another book then and we talked a little bit and we asked for prayer and nobody prayed. And I said, see you on Sunday. And then we said we were brothers and sisters in Christ and we were family. Doesn't make sense, does it? What does it look like for us to be committed to community that's shaped by the gospel for the gospel? A church that is devoted to the word, Acts 2, and devoted to each other and devoted to the world, knowing that God makes his appeal to this community and to this city in and through us. What does it mean for us to cultivate a gospel culture in the context of our gospel communities? That it's more than just getting together and it's more than just a list on a WhatsApp that actually we truly loving and caring one for another. And that happens in our church. What does it look like to press into that more? We want to be committed to being God's people, living God's way in the everyday. Amen? Are you with me on this? One, because that's where joy and support and encouragement and blessing is found. But two, that's where a watching world looks in and says there's something about these people. There's something in this. 
We also want to be a church that is committed to multiplication, making disciples. Making disciples. God has formed a people to himself to display his glory to and to display his glory through. God's glory is displayed through people like you and me. That's mind-blowing. And Jesus says to us, go and make disciples. We want more people to be part of this. We want the Lord to add to our number. And folks, it is about numbers. It is about numbers. It winds me up, silly, when people say it's not about numbers. Often we say that it's because the numbers aren't happening that we don't want to happen. So we justify ourselves and say, oh, it's not about the numbers. It is about the numbers. If we're not walking around an airport or walking down the street or standing at the school gate, seeing a thousand children there and aren't broken at the fact that the majority of people know nothing of Jesus, it is about seeing a thousand kids coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? It is. It is about multiplication. It's about more people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the 1.6 million of Liverpool being transformed in and through the church for the Lord Jesus. In the book of Acts, there are numbers that people can't number. There are multitudes. And then there are numbers. I pray that this church, Oral Park, all the churches in the collective, all the gospel preaching churches explode this year with people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ explode with those who are so fed up with this confusing culture, see something that makes sense in the midst of gospel communities all around our city. And the hundreds and thousands and millions of people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, both in Liverpool, Merseyside, the UK, and the world. Folks, we are about numbers. We are about numbers. But we're not about numbers for our glory. We're about numbers because one day, there will be a multitude that no one can number of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And God's going to use people like you and me. And there are going to be people in Oral Park and in the communities in Oral Park because these people who have stepped in by faith, those who have stepped in from Oral, those who have been sent from Cornerstone Church are stepping in because there are numbers of people in those streets who don't know Jesus today, but by the end of this year, they will. Amen. We want to pray that Oral Park explodes and that little building that they've got in the north end of Liverpool is not big enough. And then they have a building headache like we do. That's a great problem to have. Amen, Oral Park folks? Come on, amen, you can. Thank you. We are committed to multiplication. But that also means discipleship. That also means leadership. That also means training people. That also means equipping people. That also means teaching the Bible. That also means helping people to figure out what it looks like for me to be an ambassador in my community. And we do that together as God's people around his word. So as we go out as gospel outposts wherever God finds us, we know that we're not alone, that we're one with another as we seek to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. And finally, we are a church that is committed to planting and revitalizing new churches. And we plan churches and multiply not to make room for Christians. Not to give another alternative for people to leave a church to go to another church. No, we plant communities of people who have been reconciled by God, who live out the truth of what it is to be a Christian in communities where there is no witness. In communities where people have forgotten maybe things that they heard when they were children. Where people who are walking in confusion when God's people step in and live in the midst of a community. 
and live out what it means people notice and people see. We've got folks here from Hope Church Kensington who we were able to plant in, 20, in, 20, in 2021, went into Kensington. People moved into Kensington, and by God's grace, they have patiently seen a culture of gospel-centeredness grow, and people are coming to Christ. Amen? We've got Neil at the back there, who we were able to send out, I think, 2017. 2017 to Lark Lane. A small group of people who moved into the area to seek to love and live for, for God's people. They're on the park every Sunday, in the park, inviting people to church in the afternoon. And over the coming months, people are coming to know Jesus. Amen? Folks, church planting is not something that we do because we have room. Church planting is what we do. It's because God has called us. He has called us to send people. Church revitalization is not something that we've conjured up because we don't want to let something die. We do that because the Lord Jesus Christ pursues churches. We read that in Revelation. He pursues them. It's Jesus that builds the church. It also, within his sovereignty at times, Jesus who closes churches. And our story, the reason why you're sitting here, is because faithful men and women stepped in and said, we don't want to leave, we don't want to die, and not to have a witness in this community of proclaiming the gospel. And they stepped in, and they were that desperate, they asked the dead dead like me, and Paul, and other people to come in to help them to walk together. Why? Because Jesus stepped in and called churches to do the same, to put aside preference, to put aside history, and to put, put everything on the table apart from the truth of the gospel in order to see Neighbors in that community come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why we're committed to church revitalization. See, those who need a doctor, those who aren't sick don't need a doctor, Jesus said, but those who are sick need one. And if we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation, we need to go where the people are. We need to live there. We need to pour our hearts out for them. And we do it to see those people come to know the Lord Jesus, but we also do it to see this city transformed for the glory of Christ. Folks, we are part of the mission of God, and he has made us Christ's ambassadors. And he makes his appeal through us in every moment in every day. That's what it means to be on mission if you are part of Cornerstone Church. And today, we're going to see again, again, we're going to see that in practice as we send a group of people and lay hands on them and send them with a group of people here who are going to receive them. And in partnership together, not in leadership, not in overtaking, in partnership together, committed to proclaim the gospel in the north end of Liverpool for his glory. That's what it means to be on mission. And if you're new here for the first time, if you've been here for a couple of months, I want to say this to you. Please do not get comfortable because our prayer is that we'll be able to send you as well to all different parts of this city that need to know the Lord Jesus Christ so that more people, more numbers of people come to know him. Amen. Let me pray. Then we'll sing, get the kids in, and then we're going to pray for Carl and Sarah and the team. Father, thank you, and we praise you 
that we are your people, we are your ambassadors, all because of what you have done for us in Jesus. Help us to see that this mission that you've called us to is your mission. We get to be part of this story. We get to be part of what you are doing in this world. Help us to see the privilege of that. But Father, we recognize, as we said at the beginning, that the only reason why people come to know you is because of you. It's only you moving in the hearts by your spirit of men and women and boys and girls. So we pray now of all the people who have ran through our minds as we've heard your word preached. Those family members, those neighbors, those colleagues, those who are in darkness, those who are dead to you, break in, make them alive. For your glory's sake, we pray these things.